Welcome to Christ the Center, your weekly conversation of Reformed Theology. This is episode number 342. My name is Camden Busey. I'm the pastor of Hope Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Grays Lake, Illinois. Absolutely delighted to be back with you today. We have another very special episode, an important one that we hope will be a standard and a classic episode for years to come. Let me introduce to you first, though, our regulars. We do have uh, Dr. Jim Cassidy, who is an evangelist, uh, planting a church at South Austin OPC, as you guessed it, in Austin, Texas. Welcome back to the program, Jim. It's great to have you. Good to be here, as always, Camden. It's been a while. It's good to be back. Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, You've had your move. I do want to mention really briefly, um, the church will be uh, meeting, is it July 27th? Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, July 27th will be our first worship service in the afternoon. Uh, 3.30 p.m. will be the worship service. We'll have a Sunday school lesson at 2 o'clock, and actually we're going to be uh, learning about the Westminster Confession of Faith, and um, I'm looking forward to today's interview because uh, I'm expecting the yeah. book will help me to uh, prepare for <laughs> that. Prepare. So uh, anyway, yeah, we're, that's that's our start date. Look out for southaustinpress.org, uh, southaustinpress, P-R-E-S, Dot org, and uh, you can find more information on that website. Right, right. Absolutely. And there's an address, I believe they're meeting at Southwest Family Fellowship. It's at 8203 West Highway 71, Austin, Texas. So if you would like That's to right. go, um, you know, plug that into your Google Maps and get there on time for worship, they would love to have you. And we'd love to know if you would uh, like to connect with them. So if you got any questions, you can email them through their website. We're also uh, pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Jeff Waddington, who is stated supply at Knox OPC in Lansdowne, Pennsylvania. Welcome back, Jeff. It's good to speak with you also. Yeah, it's great to be here with with the guys and to, the, to talk about a, an excellent uh, publication. Indeed. Forthcoming and- publication. Exactly. And for that, we have uh, the Reverend Dr. Chad Van Dixorn, who is Associate Professor of Church History at RTS Washington, as well as Associate Pastor of Grace OPC in Vienna, Virginia. Welcome back, Chad. It's been a few years since we've talked on the program, but it's wonderful to have you once again. It's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, Chad has written a fantastic book, a wonderful book, uh, titled Confessing the Faith, A Reader's Guide to the Westminster Confession. It's published by Banner of Truth Trust, uh, 2014. Uh, forthcoming. We have uh, in advance a little digital copy that we're looking at, and uh, it's a wonderful read, and we're going to open that up and speak about it today, as well as the Westminster Confession of Faith. But before we do so, I do need to mention that Christ the Center is listener-supported. We do rely on the generous support of all of our listeners to help us produce and distribute all of our programs free of charge. We love uh, recording conversations on Reformed theology and doing all sorts of other things like conferences and and, uh, hopefully some more meetups, but we need your help to do so. So visit us online today at reformedforum.org slash donate to pledge your support. We want to thank everybody for their support here of what we do at Reformed Forum in this particular program. Christ the Center. Uh, One final thing uh, of housekeeping, I should mention that the Reform Forum Theology Conference for October 10th through 12th, 2014 is a go. Uh, We've received uh, uh, our funding, Uh, we've reached our funding goal in order to lock that in and make sure that it happens. And very soon we will be opening up uh, registration for the remaining seats. So we're we're, um, blocking off um, uh, a few seats. We're only going to allow 104 people to come to this conference, trying to keep it small on purpose so that we can have a lot of interaction between the attendees and the speakers. But we're going to be welcoming uh, Dr. Scott Oliphant and Dr. Lane Tipton to Hope Presbyterian Church in Grays Lake, Illinois, just north of O'Hare Airport near Chicago. 
Uh, October 10th through 12th, 2014. More information about that will be on the website shortly. So uh, I was very pleased to receive a copy of this book, Confessing the Faith. Uh, One, because I subscribe to the Westminster Standards. I also teach them, as you might expect, being in an OP congregation. And I find the, the standards so helpful, but at the same time, it's, it's nice to have a wonderful reader's guide like this that we can hand out um, to congregants, but also to, to learn and to grow ourselves and use within our families. Chad, can you speak a, a little bit about your work with the standards? Maybe uh, provide a thumbnail sketch of what you've been doing over the last decade or so as well as your desire now to provide a reader's guide, something a bit different from what you've done in your scholarship, although complementary, but nevertheless a little bit different focus than what you've done with the minutes, perhaps. Yeah, well, quite, quite a different focus. Yeah. I suppose the, the, the minutes were my second idea. <laughs> um, the first interest that I had uh, was in trying to understand the confession better. And uh, a number of years ago, I was asked to teach on it, looked at a uh, the resources out there I was thankful for them, but felt that a lot of them were uh, using the confession as a launching point, Camden, uh-huh. uh, for for uh, discussions of Reformed theology generally, which were edifying and useful, and I learned a lot from them. But wanted to be able to uh, access uh, the text of the confession, maybe some discussions behind it a little bit better. So, so um, as uh, some of you have done, I was asked to teach little mini lessons on the confession at Calvary OPC in uh, Glenside, and uh, went on from there to spend some years looking at the Westminster Assembly um, and uh, its debates, all the while kind of plugging away at this book on the Confession. And uh, finally, when the uh, minutes and papers of the Assembly were published in 2012, I had the space to return back to the first project. And uh, n- nothing, nothing that I did at uh, Calvary beyond the initial idea survived. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I was able to uh, sort of pick up what was what I had done through the years, revise it heavily about twenty times, and, and uh, <laughs> give it to a publisher. That's wonderful. We're so glad the banner has picked this up. Um, a wonderful publisher. We want to, on the side here, thank them also for sending us some copies of the new edition of Voss's Biblical Theology. Uh, they've published a hardcover edition, and it's a beautiful one at that. And we've given away a few copies in conjunction with our Voss group, which goes on this program about once a month. So we want to thank the banner and uh, very much appreciate them t- picking up books like this, uh, sticking with their tradition of, as they've done for so many years. It's wonderful to have a title like this. It's really going to help the church for many years to come. Now, Carl Truman uh, wrote the foreword to this particular volume, and in it he makes uh, the comment that confessional Christianity has become rather popular, uh, but it may be uh, what used to just be called simply conservative Christianity. And Mm. so he argues that truly confessional Christianity actually goes much deeper than just a minimalist set of basic beliefs. I seem to pick up something like that as you write in the book, speaking about a truly confessional Christianity, but what is your assessment of the current state of confessionalism? At least in evangelicalism. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not a social demographer, and I probably need to get out a little more. So <laughs> don't, don't put too much stock in this. I, I am concerned that uh, too many churches have a dozen bullet points on their website, and uh, then then discover that's not really much to guide them um, or to aspire towards uh, in their their ruling and teaching in the church. 
And, and so every time a, a, a new subject comes up, they, they reinvent the wheel. Each generation uh, has insufficient guidance, each generation of leadership. And so you see them sort of constantly uh, d- doing things over or doing things differently. And it's, uh, this, this is not the only reason why evangelical churches offer roller coaster rides for members, but I think this is one of them. And um, I, I think that Presbyterian churches have, have uh, you know, lot, lots of room to grow. But th- this, is, this is one strength, really, um, that, that we've, we've got something to chew on. Chad, tell us a little bit about the uh, the history of the revisions uh, that uh, you introduced to us, um, the early part of the book, uh, yeah, 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 1903 yeah. and all that. The confessional text is, on the whole, pretty stable. Nonetheless, there are there are, as you, as you just mentioned, a few sort of major stages of of revision. Um, the, the the most substantial. Uh, comes around 1788. Uh, this, these late 18th century revisions affect uh, confessional chapters 20, 23, and 31, one paragraph in each of those. Um, and they reflect a change perspective, I think, on the relationship between the church and the state. The 18th century revisions uh, also make some tweaks to the larger catechism. Uh, for example, uh, answer 109, uh, uh, which originally prohibited tolerating a false religion uh, that, that, that didn't work so well in, uh, in the American state. And uh, they changed one word in uh, answer 142, which originally prohibited depopulations, which was kind of embarrassing given the ongoing European settlement of territory right. once belonging to Native Americans. So, so some principial and some public relations changes there. Um, and then uh, – uh, in in the nineteenth century, uh, you see some relaxation about or about rules uh, regarding marriage, um, and 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 then of of, of course uh, you, you all would know well that the Presbyterian Church in the USA um, in the early twentieth century made some extensive revisions, in effect offering kind of a soft Calvinism um, to uh, to foster. A, uh, a a unity with the Arminian Cumberland Valley Presbyterians. So uh, the OPC, the PCA, um, a, a number of other d- denominations uh, reject virtually all of those early 20th century changes, um, uh, although they, they did agree with the removal of the reference to the Pope as the Antichrist. So that that's kind of a Quick, quick survey there, uh, and I think some—I I definitely know some British denominations. Although they hold to the historic text, will allow um, their ministers and elders to take exception, virtually without comment or notice, on all of those changes that I just mentioned that are in the American version. The question about the the beginning of the confession, chapter one. Uh, yeah. Can you can you give us a an introduction to that? And uh, you're undoubtedly familiar with the discussions uh, as to whether that was the best way to begin, or whether there were uh, other ways that might have been preferable. Uh, fire away. Yeah. So so that that's probably a more interesting question for most of your listeners than 
the history of textual revisions of the confession. So. <laughs> well, still interesting. We should note there are parallel <laughs> parallel entries to the version, so you can compare. Uh, Chad does provide uh, the modern edition, which is not yep. necessarily yep. constitutional for the OP or for other denominations, and then also what he has labeled the historic text. So it's really neat that we're able to compare the differences um, in a way that that's helpful as it complements Chad's uh, comments on the theology. It's really, really quite interesting. Yeah, and before getting to Jeff's question, um, which he could probably answer as well as I can, if not better, um, I, I do want to tip my hat to John Bauer. He's the one who's provided mm-hmm. the what I'm calling a historic text. We we sort of had a fairly torturous conversation trying to think of what best to call it. I mean, the historic text is one that maintains all the quiddities and spelling and and everything else. We, we ended up modernizing some spelling, although we kept the punctuation as awkward as it what originally was. Um, nice. And so John Bauer is the one who's done all the work. And I, I think his uh, critical text introduction may be coming out later this year uh, on the Westminster Confession of Faith will be the best thing that uh, that's ever been out there in terms of a reliable birth text. Wonderful. The, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Uh, or of the confession. Um, so, so Jeff, you, you know the, uh, the the place where you can start a conf- where, where should you start a confession? Right. Uh, I, I think Richard Muller in his Post Reformation Reform Dogmatics and his volume on uh, on, on uh, Prolegomena makes it clear that systematic theologies and confessions usually start with decrees Scripture or God of the three, almost always Scripture or God. Um, and and so the assembly, you know, easily could have flipped a coin. Do we do we start with the God who reveals Himself, or do we start with uh, the revelation which uh, which tells us about Him? Really, so, yeah. sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, the confession go, goes for option number two, uh, which I think is is uh, fine, and uh, and and begins not with the doctrine of its chapter on Scripture. Begins not with the doctrine of Scripture. Um, but uh, in its opening sentence, with with general revelation and its twofold uh, uh, display of who God is in our in our consciences, our hearts, and then also in the world around us. So, light of nature and creation. Mm-hmm. There's so much there. It's really helpful to lay these foundations. That's quite useful here to speak about the doctrine of God, and then uh, as the confession begins here with prolegomena and with Scripture. Uh, the confession does speak about inspiration, uh, picking up on the Second Timothy three sixteen yeah. language, you know, theopneustos and all that. Um, but we might not know what was going on at the time, at least historically and, and ecclesially. Uh, what other views of inspiration were influential at the time? Was that a contested issue? Uh, was this section of the confession much uh, debated at the assembly, for instance? Well, this section of the confession. Um, was was not debated much more than any other section, um, but there are widely varying uses of uh, terms like inspiration uh, at the time of the assembly, and and indeed by by Westminster divines. So um, sometimes inspiration is understood to be. Uh, something like regeneration, you'll see that in the 39 articles. Uh, sometimes it means sort of an, an influence or a feeling. Um, 
the Westminster divines when it comes to scripture are suddenly become much more careful in their use of the word inspiration. Um, and they distinguish between verbal and nonverbal um, and uh, immediate and mediate. Uh, excuse me, they, they, they specify immediate reform, uh, um, revelation or inspiration, uh, which is kind of curious because I haven't found anyone who, who believes in immediate information uh, prior to uh, sort of occult spiritists. So I have no idea why they're – I'm not clear as to why they, they stress immediate uh, when, when no one seems to hold to a immediate form of inspiration. Could you comment a little bit about the uh, the use of the language of good and necessary consequence? Uh, it's interesting uh, comparing uh, yeah. Westminster Confession of Faith and, like, let's say the London Baptist Confession of 1689, yeah. um, which drops that language. Um, yeah. Could you tell us a little bit about the importance of of the divine's hermeneutics and how that might play into their use of the language good and necessary consequence? So. So good and necessary consequence refers to inescapable logical deductions from Scripture. And the assembly insists that we are held responsible to believe and obey those. Um, that they have in mind things like the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, they have in mind things like the uh, doctrine of uh, of Reformed baptism, covenantal baptism. Um, but they also had in mind, the, the Presbyterians especially, uh, figuring out a church government. And uh, the congregationalists at the assembly were a little bit more reluctant to embrace good and necessary consequence. Uh, and that comes up in a number of debates. We, we, we see them sort of drawing back from good and necessary consequence uh, as an idea, not just the consequences that the Presbyterians were drawing. Um, of course, they, they had to employ good necessary consequence. Every Christian does. Indeed. Um, yeah. So it's no surprise. You, you know, re- Reformed Baptist writings are kind of one step beyond congregational writings in terms of a hermeneutical minimalism. Um, so the Congregationalists are nervous about good and necessary consequence, Reformed Baptists even more so. Hmm. Uh, hence hence the, uh, uh, the, the character of the debates on the floor of the Assembly and then the removal of the phrase from the London Baptist Confession. Wow. It's quite telling when you see other people using uh, these standards as a starting point and then adopting them in various ways, altering things and changing things. It really uh, is telling. Uh, you, you've mentioned this several times, uh, this phrase, light of nature, and that yeah. pops up here in the first chapter. It's quite interesting, yeah. especially when we think about, oh, I don't know, things, uh, the relationship of general and special revelation, as well as, you know, maybe the uh, the aims and the uh, hopes somebody might have for a natural theology. What do the divines mean by light of nature? How might that, you know, help us to understand uh, prolegomena, at least in a confessional sense? Light of nature... I think for the, I'm pretty sure for the Westminster Assembly, involves an element of conscience and reason, kind of a blend of conscience and reason. Um, that, that's what they have in mind. Some, and, and this is the God-given gift of the conscience, the God-given gift of, of reason. Um, the, uh, 
the assembly uh, will will say things uh, to that to to affirm transubstantiation um, uh, is is to uh, deny. Um, oh, I'm trying to think of the exact phrase. My mind just went blank. Um, they'll argue against things not simply because it's unscriptural, but but also because it's unreasonable. And they will appeal in those instances sometimes to the light of nature directly. Um, they, they think that it's, uh, it's scandalous um, to, to speak against the light of nature. They're that confident that the light of nature speaks clearly. Uh, that's interesting that you touch on that. Uh, what lesson, if I'm going to ask you to, to, to yeah. draw a lesson from this, uh, what have we lost uh, or have we have we lost in that concept of light of nature? Are we so afraid of yeah, uh, reason uh, in a proper sense? Is there yeah. an understanding of reason that would be biblical, chastened, if you will? I, I mean, a- a- absolutely. And uh, the confession of faith, I think, is really wise in telling us that we need the light of nature to, to consider worship. Um and uh, that we need the light of nature uh, uh, to, to make a lot of uh, judgments. Um, and uh, well, <laughs> again, light of nature is, is not a feeling, and it's, it's not something, something mystical. It's, it's God revealing himself in our consciences and, and through, through reason. Um, so... The assembly, I think, sometimes refers to the light of nature uh, and, and means something like just common sense. Um, and they do argue against positions uh, not only because they're, they're unscriptural, but because they're unreasonable uh, or, or unconscionable. They, they make all of, all of those arguments. Uh, I, th- I think we, we need to do that. Um, of course, there's, there's always the danger that people... Um, take something which is a matter of obedience and try and cast it as a matter of wisdom. Um, uh, we, we, we do that when we're, un, when we're unwilling to follow the word. Uh, but just because we see people being foolish and using the light of nature or wisdom um, uh, to, to dodge truth doesn't mean that we should be in any way shy of it. I mean, uh, that would, that's helpful. But I, I in my work on Jonathan Edwards, people constantly refer to his confidence in reason. But as I understand him, it's 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 confidence in what God has created, uh, not autonomous reasoning. You know, for us who are Vantillians, we're concerned about that. But but reasoning uh, either as it was created prior to the fall, or reasoning as it's regenerated. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. One of you, one of you mentioned, you know, light of nature, law of nature. I mean, how how do the two relate in the assembly's thinking? S- seems to me that on occasions it appears that the light of nature reflects laws of nature as the assembly's thinking through things. Um, but in its own writings, the assembly refers to laws of nature very jealously. I think only once. Um, well, it refers to the light of nature very often. Um, but both of them are subservient to scripture. Mm-hmm. They are to illuminate, uh, illuminate scripture. Um, 
uh, one, of, one of the guys uh, in, in one of his uh, speeches says that uh, the light of nature is a strengthening, or there's a strengthening of a scriptural institution when there's a law of nature to back it. Uh, that's what Thomas Goodwin sees happening in 1 Corinthians 9 when, when uh, Paul speaks about provision for pastors being as obvious as provision for animals. Uh, so. <laughs> mm, okay. <laughs> And, you know, you, there are also some interesting uh, comments here when we're speaking about clarity and what God has revealed. Yeah. Um, how does that apply to Scripture and its, its perspicuity, for instance? Uh, so so the, the, they say two things there, really helpfully. Um, not all Scripture is equally clear. And, and by the way, not all of us read Scripture equally well. It's both a reflection on people. Yes, yes, yes. God. And uh, you know, not all of us are scholars. Not all of us are seasoned saints. Uh, and there's a lot of uh, corners, sometimes halls and rooms that we've uh, yet to explore um, uh, in in the Bible. And and then and then there's just the fact that you know to get to some parts of the Bible it's a steep climb. Mm-hmm. Uh, sure is. And uh, so so what what they want to do is is to try and be realistic as they guide people into the scriptures in the opening chapter. They also want to. Uh, assure people that everything we really need to know is accessible, uh, both for both for uh, doctrine and life, um, and 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 everything that we need to know uh, for the way of salvation is clear, and with the Holy Spirit's help, can be clear to all who seek it. A question, uh, Chad, on the decrees. Um, the confession speaks about ordering, decreeing, and permitting. Um, Tell us a little bit about the differences between, uh, you know, the use of those words within the confession. So it seems to me that the assembly introduces a kind of soft distinction um, with with these terms. In the writings of the assembly, predestination is used in reference to election only and not to reprobation. While foreordination is, is used both generally sort of referring to the divine decrees, say in chapter 3, verse, uh, uh, paragraph 6, or the larger catechism, uh, question answer 12, and so forth. So foreordination is used both generally to refer to the divine decrees and narrowly referring to reprobation. Um, and, and so because predestination is, is used in reference to election only, um, and foreordination both generally to just refer to all decrees and narrowly to refer to reprobation, I think the assembly... Uh, with its confession and catechisms, introduces a kind of soft distinction in the way in which predestination and foreordination are used to refer to election and reprobation, respectively. You know, um, before the confession uh, moves on to speaking about salvation, I mean, yeah. we spend a lot of time in, in those chapters, especially recently, because that seems to be where a lot of the Reformed debates um, are going on at the moment. But all of that presupposes what occurs in the chapters that proceed. And you have a section here titled Sin and the Savior, and yet yeah. that begins with chapter 6, and which corresponds in the confession to of the fall of man, of sin, and of the punishment thereof, etc. What are some basic uh, features of, of the um, confession's homertology and Christology, and how are those so essential to understand even before we move on to salvation, uh, properly speaking? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, that, that's, that's, that's a great question. So the assembly takes steps to go beyond what the 39 articles had to say um, when, when it comes to our plight. There's a, there's a number of places where the 39 articles use language which, 
which which seems to offer maybe a little bit um, of a softer view of the fall. Um, and so the assembly will offer a stronger statement on concupiscence, uh, where the uh, Article 9 and the 39 Articles will say uh, that uh, we're very far gone from original, original righteousness. You know, the assembly is going to say we're, we're, we're wholly deprived of these things. Uh, so a statement of original, original sin is not only clearly organized uh, following uh, Thomas Aquinas' uh, tripartite definition, uh, but, but it's more rigorous than what comes before. Um, so, uh, to quote, you know, Jack Miller, cheer up, uh, you're worse off than, than, uh, you thought you were. But then they go on to expound in eight of my favorite paragraphs, mm-hmm. uh, the work of Christ with, with great clarity, um, bringing in his threefold offices, um, uh, showing redemption accomplished, totally setting you up for redemption applied, um, showing how everything coheres in and is, is connected to Christ the mediator. Um, so, so all of that um, uh, fall accomplished, redemption accomplished, is, is all set up by the assembly before they get to uh, redemption applied. Mm-hmm. That's so helpful. And, and the listeners would probably like to know, Chad's done some wonderful critical work on the Sonship Movement. And I found it quite interesting, um, some similarities between the Sonship Movement and some of the present-day gnomism, antinomianism debates. Um, how, how does that whole debate play out at the Assembly? Is, is there much of a tension between critics who would charge some people as holding to more of a nomistic view and others being antinomians, or does that come later in the historical record? Antinomianism becomes uh, the specter which all, all, all divines fear um, at the assembly. And I, I, I suppose they're, they're probably overreacting. Um, th- there weren't antinomians behind every church pillar and tree in the park. Um, nonetheless, the, uh, the voice that was permitted to them in pulpits and print was was significant, and you have different different kinds of antinomians. You just have those who are are just uh, uh, advocating their freedoms to the point of licentiousness. You also have those who are sort of godly people who are so anti-Arminian that they want to take faith. Uh, excuse me, they want to take just justification and put it in, in eternity. Uh, you so see that, that in chapter eleven four. There's some pretty strong language there that prevents that yeah, kind of notion. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. So, so there's a a, a reference uh, to to the to the problem contemporary to their day, um, where where you have people uh, saying you need to put justification in eternity, uh, so that faith can't become some kind of work, some kind of um, uh, peppercorn, as Baxter would put it. Uh, this tiny, tiny little contribution that God takes in lieu of our completing the covenant of works faithfully. Um, so the assembly says, no, no, you know, the, the, the scripture clearly puts belief in Christ, faith in Christ, in some kind of uh, instrumental fashion that the Holy Spirit unites us to Christ by faith. We're justified uh, by faith, and 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 so they're unwilling uh, to to make um, 
to, to make Calvinism, as it were, more bulletproof uh, by, by ignoring good scriptural exegesis. Hey, you, I think we see that a lot in the confession, that, mm-hmm. that there's, there's, a, there's an eagerness to be guided by scripture uh, more than there's an eagerness to, to, to keep out error, um, if, even though errors are often addressed. So, I mean, that's, that's kind of a no-brainer for writing a good confession, but <laughs> right, right. we'll see it. One of the uh, interesting discussions that, that we have heard in recent days, and I think you did an interview at the PCA General Assembly one time some mm-hmm. years back, but talking about the active and passive obedience of Christ and uh, imputation, etc. Um, and, and this could take a whole episode, I recognize, but would you be able to give us a thumbnail sketch of what some of the issues are involved uh, about the active and passive obedience, uh, you know, sure. debates over, you know, why would we use or not use imputation of active obedience? Etc. Sure. Um, so the act of obedience of Christ refers to his law keeping, uh, the way in which he fulfills uh, the moral law, all, all that was required of a man born under the law. Um, and everyone believes in, everyone at the assembly believes in the act of obedience of Christ. The question is whether that obedience is imputed to those who are justified. Um, We know that Christ's righteousness is imputed to us, that we stand before God using that righteousness permanently loaned to believers. Um, But members at the assembly were concerned that a rigorous two-atom theology, which gave a lot of prominence to Christ's act of obedience, ran against the grain of Scripture, which seemed to focus on his death and resurrection. Um, they, they felt that this was kind of giving equal time uh, to something that the Scriptures do not give equal time to. Um, so that's one concern. Uh, another concern is that if people think that Christ has not only fulfilled the law to be an eligible sacrifice, but also fulfilled the law in our place to, uh, to correct, uh, in fact, to replace our lack of law-keeping, um, then that opens the door to antinomianism. It's hard to know how seriously they intend that objection, um, Jim, because they will uh, routinely use uh, different errors as as ways of getting leverage for a position they're holding for some other reason, right? So it's hard to know whether the fear of antinomianism is a controlling factor or a rhetorical device. But but it's substantial, even if it's not the main driver. Um, You have other people um, who don't like to speak about the imputation of the act of obedience and the passive obedience, but perhaps because of weakness in nomenclature. I mean, what part of Christ's passive obedience is an active? Uh, uh, to pick one example, the problem of, of active and passive language. Um, the, the language used for imputation of active and passive obedience in the 17th century at this point in time is, is a whole obedience. That, that's the uh, the, the the typical language, whole obedience uh, imputed, refers to active and passive. And so the assembly has this protracted debate 
on more than one occasion as to whether um, the language of active obedience or the language of whole obedience uh, should be inserted into the confession. They do insert it into their revision of the 39 articles. Later, they don't put it after debating it twice uh, in the Westminster Confession. And so the the uh, you know the fifty dollar question is uh, you know why uh, what are the motives? Um, obviously, one motive could be just to make peace with those who um, who don't hold to that doctrine. Um, another motive could be I'm sorry for the, the length of this answer. Another motive could be that there stuff. is some felt no keep going. That, uh, some some people felt felt that. Uh, to insist on the language of whole obedience actually put them on the back foot in their argument. Um, they just wanted to say that the obedience of Christ is imputed. And if anyone's going to say that some aspect of his obedience is not imputed, then they need to defend that. So, so it's, a, it's, it's, it's a strategic argument for some people not to use whole obedience language, I believe. Um, uh, what, why, why say that the whole obedience of Christ is imputed. Just say his obedience is imputed, and, and if someone wants to dispute that uh, or, or argue that some part of that is is not to be imputed, then then, then the onus is on them to prove it. Uh, does that make any sense? Yeah, oh. Absolutely. Yeah, it's uh, Chad, uh, if we could switch gears, although not completely switching gears, we we see that the, the divines had a concern. Uh, about uh, antinomianism, the, the Christian's relationship to the law, yeah. and, and there's a there's a chapter on on that in the confession. Uh, yeah. What what is the divine's understanding of liberty of conscience? Uh, because I, I I ask that question because I think we have an understanding in the 21st century, and the divines have an understanding in the. Uh, 17th century, and yeah. the, they yeah. they may overlap, but they don't. They're not identical. I was wondering if you could help with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, Jeff, just to finish a thought, although uh, the confession doesn't put in language of active obedience or whole obedience, the assembly as a whole clearly manufactures a system of – they clearly not manufacture. They express a system of doctrine that is – inhospitable, that's a very poor host to someone who would deny the imputation of the act of obedience of Christ. I mean, anyone who would Mm -hmm. deny the imputation of the act of obedience of Christ would have some kind of biblical or systematic reason for doing so. Whatever that kind of exegesis or or reasoning might be, the rest of the, the confession doesn't offer a platform on which that can stand. Right. Uh, v- very much the contrary, actually. Right. Does, does that right. make sense? Absolutely. So, I guess I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't want to miss that. So um, it's it's interesting uh, when it comes to to liberty of conscience uh, or Christian liberty. You know, I, I I think a lot of people living at the time of the assembly would have been surprised to hear them talking about about liberty of conscience. Um, if uh, if, if they weren't already in agreement with the assembly. That, that is to say, uh, there are people who feel like the Westminster Assembly is far too prescriptive uh, about many aspects of life. At, at the same time, the members of the assembly feel like the church that they were a part of was far too prescriptive uh, when it came uh, to, to, to worship. 
and 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 to and to government, and they they are insisting um, that one only needs to obey what the Word of God commands us uh, and says is necessary, especially when it comes to doctrine of worship and and uh, and also to church government. The assembly wants to say, no, we're only bound by what the Word of God says. When it comes to, um, uh, to, to church government, they, they insist that ministers should not take powers upon themselves that the Word of God doesn't offer. Um, the assembly first makes its, I think it makes its, its earliest comment about liberty of conscience uh, when it's revising the sixth of the 39 articles. It, it base, the, the obvious thing it does in revising the 39 articles uh, is, is to chop out the endorsement of the Apocrypha. Uh, another thing that it does in revising the sixth article is to remove the specious claim that no Old Testament or New Testament book was ever doubted, which the uh, 39 articles also say. But, but then they also slide in a statement on Christian liberty. Um, and uh, I think that's a foretaste of what they end up uh, uh, giving us in the confession, which is not just a, a few words, but a whole chapter. But you can see it's on their mind. Uh, you'd expect it would be on their mind, given the way they were treated, so many of them, prior to uh, the Civil War. Uh, but but we already see it popping up in 1643. Mm. You know, there's so much going on historically at the time the Assembly was called, Um I'd say it's a turbulent uh, piece of history, especially for the people uh, living in England uh, and Scotland. And one of the things that is quite interesting um, historically, but then also becomes very interesting theologically, is the Confession's teaching about ecclesiology. Uh, you know, this has become foundational for many of us, especially yeah. American Presbyterians, but uh, th- things have been altered a little bit and revised yeah. for various reasons. Um how was the ecclesiology of the assembly affected by their experience of the Church of England, for instance? They were they were brought to uh, reform that doctrine, um, but still they're they're coming from a certain understanding and, and presupposition. Can you speak to that as well as maybe the influence of the Scottish commissioners? We realize this is a giant topic, but maybe yeah, yeah. some of the high points on this because. As, as more and more people adopt the confession or at least look to it in evangelicalism, one thing that we will find is that many of these traditions will often have a, a weaker ecclesiology. It's something that the confession is very strong on, but yeah. uh, these historical dimensions help to inform what they mean by their teaching. Yeah. So, so I mean, odd, oddly enough, I have to take issue a number of times with the Assembly's ecclesiology mm-hmm. in, the, in confessing the faith. Mm-hmm. Um, in 1646, the assembly has kind of gone too far and not far enough. Uh, its directory for church government has not been well received, uh, and in fact is, is heavily contested uh, by parliament. Uh, has it become the law of the land? The assembly is still hopeful. Um, and, and so when they write the confession, there are, there are things still in the air. Are there going to be ruling elders? Uh, the, uh, the, the confession just refers to other church officers uh, that has, have, haven't even been able to uh, successfully articulate in the public sphere um, a, a doctrine of, of ruling elders. 
Um, so, so that they haven't gone far enough. Then there are ways in which they've they've gone too far when it comes to the powers of the state. And, and there, I think it's not so much a Church of England thing as it is a Constantinian inheritance. Yeah. Um, and a situational problem, which is that they could not uh, reform the church through its courts, through the upper or lower house of convocation, or through the bishops, could not uh, change the courts uh, through what's called uh, the courts, <laughs> that is referring to the king's circle, uh, the court, I should say. Uh, they couldn't reform the church through the courts in yet another sense, that is through the justices. Um, and so they, they appeal, as they had for decades, to, to Parliament. And with Parliament backing them, but also uh, wanting to maintain its power uh, over the assembly, the, the divines um, articulate, both out of conviction and out of a situational space cramp, um, uh, a view of church and state that, that's, uh, that's somewhat deficient. I, I think... All the problems come down to, well, almost all the problems come down to this. The church is the new Israel, but Israel when? Uh, Israel promised land or Israel in exile? Mm -hmm. And as they see uh, the Church of England being somewhat reformed, uh, the king restrained um, uh, in certain euphoric moments, righteousness appearing to make some advances, they conclude, as many had before them, that that the church is essentially Israel in the promised land. Uh, I think that affects tone in some places in the the confession. I think it affects ecclesiology and the relationship, especially between church and state. Uh, Does does that make sense? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. There's there's so much going on here. Just back in December, we interviewed uh, Wayne Spear, and he has a book with uh, Reformation Heritage Books, and he talks a lot about uh, the issues that are going on here. Um, I just encourage a listener to take a look at that book. Uh, Whether or not you're convinced by his his case is one question, but it's a very well-written book and a fascinating one, so our interview on that topic um, could be useful for those who'd like to go deeper on the subject. Of course, uh, the confession has so many other topics that we're just not able to speak about today for a lack of time. Um, the last section here on the last things is very important on eschatology. Uh, Chad has some wonderful material there. But before we let you go, Chad, we want like to get your thoughts um, upon the book as a whole and, yeah. and where uh, it fits within the genre uh, of commentaries on the, on the standards, whether they be the confession or, or the catechisms how do you see this book is contributing in a unique way um to you know to the the nurture and admonition of god's people yeah th- thanks camden so if the book is original in any way i i think it's because it has an historical focus uh that that i think is is maybe more obvious than in other commentaries mm. That is to say, I'm trying to expound a particular text mm-hmm. um, and not reform theology generally. Um, it's also historical in that I'm trying to understand that text in part by looking at the proof text that the assembly is citing. In what way can these illuminate the confession? Now, now the, the proof texts are, are authored after the uh the confession 
So one might think how, you know, that this is an illegitimate mode of interpretation. But um, although they're published, I should say, or printed after the confession is completed, after approving of every phrase and paragraph and chapter, the assembly, as it went along, approved uh, scriptural passages in support of the doctrine articulated there. And so when they create the proof text, they are refining those somewhat, but for the most part, they're just culling from work that they did while writing the confession. Uh, and so I, I think the proof texts are a valuable guide and often helped me understand uh, or, or go deeper uh, with the confession, understand it better or, or go a little deeper with the confessional text. Right. Um, and so those, 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 those are a couple of ways in which I think this confession is is unique. And, and then I, I, I suppose, uh, I think there's a doxological tone to some aspects of the confession. Sure. And, uh, I, I, don't, I don't know if it's historical or not, but I've tried to maintain that mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, and, and enjoy that while, while writing. No, I think it's evident. And I would commend uh, the book also for its style, its, its brevity, um, but uh, surely doesn't uh, sacrifice any of its thoroughness. Uh, th- it's a wonderful book that I think many people are going to find useful. In the preface, you also mentioned that there's a study guide in the works. Is that still the case? Yeah, it, it, it certainly is. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, so we look forward to that coming out as well. This book is definitely something that our listeners should pick up, and we, we believe you can use it in your families, in your churches, and, and also personally. It's going to be something that will be prove useful time and time again. It's one of those books where you can read it many, many times and still learn as you go. Chad, I want to thank you so much uh, for joining us today. It's been such a pleasure to speak with you. We really appreciate you taking the time. Well, it's a pleasure to speak with the three of you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Anytime. You're welcome. We do want to point people to the right places online so they can follow up with Chad as well as learn what's going on. rts.edu slash Washington is one great place. But you can also visit Grace Presbyterian Church online at graceviena.org. That's V-I-E-N-N-A. If you were in southern Illinois, that would be Vienna. But it's Grace Vienna in Virginia. And, of course, we're online at reformedforum.org. There you'll find information about all of our programs as well as uh, things that are coming up. We've got a lot of great stuff online that uh, it's in the works. Uh, we've got some beta versions of uh, some new design and some other things that we're working on. Uh, so stay apprised of all of those changes by visiting reformedforum.org regularly. Uh, we want to thank everybody for listening. And, of course, we hope you join us again next time on Christ the Center.